I, I want to do something different that uh, maybe I wouldn't have done. Uh, it's a bit unusual because I want to spend four weeks on Christmas music. I love Christmas music. There have been times, uh, my wife will tell you, even in the summer when I put on my favorite Nat King Cole CD or Bing Crosby CD and my family makes fun of me, you know, they say, uh, they say it's too early for that, you know, and I'll take it off again. Um, and some Christian songs are meaningful, uh, but they're not exactly biblical, like uh, Little Drummer Boy. I don't know if you know this or not, but there wasn't a Little Drummer Boy, okay, at the birth of Jesus. Um, or, uh, I'm dreaming of a boy, right? Like, that's, I, like, just hearing his voice, I just melt into Christmas. Um, so some are meaningful, but they're not really biblical. Uh, some are uh, neither meaningful nor biblical. Like, Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Uh, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Right? You're a mean one. But, but I hear those too, and I love it. It reminds me of Christmas. Um, some uh, songs that we sing at Christmas have incredible meaning, and the question this morning is, are they biblical? Because we sing them in church. One of those songs are, uh, we're going to talk about today, Hark the Herald Angel Sings. There are others as well, The First Noel, Silent Night, Joy to the World, and many others. And the question is, are those songs biblical because we sing them in the church? So over the next four weeks, I want to look at four different Christmas songs or hymns, and we're going to use those classics as launching pads to actually go back into the Word of God and talk about the Christmas season. At the very least, we're going to gain an appreciation and a knowledge for some of these songs that we sing. And at best, we're going to be able to deepen our faith in Christ and reignite our desire to make Christmas be more and more about Jesus Christ. In Matthew 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah, and speaking to church people who already believed in God, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I think that's a scary passage because I think especially in the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, we have to be especially careful not to be honoring him with our lips, the songs that we sing, but really our hearts are far from him in the Christmas season. So over the next four weeks, as I said, we're going to look at four different Christmas hymns and, and, and then try to draw our hearts back to the heart of God. The first song we want to talk about is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, let's talk about a history of this song a little bit and get that out of the way. Most of this uh, song, these words were written in 1737 by a guy named Charles Wesley. Uh, Charles Wesley was the brother of the founder of Methodism, right? John Wesley. It's said that uh, he was inspired to write this poem uh, by the sounds of the London church bells while he was walking to church on Christmas Day. The words first appeared as a poem in 1739 in a little book entitled Hymns and Sacred Poems. Charles Wesley was the youngest of 18 children, only 11 of which survived into adulthood. Charles was a preacher, just like his brother John, uh, had a very Christian mother who instilled doctrine into them at a young age. But Charles was better known, not as a preacher, but as a prolific hymn writer. In fact, he was the most prolific hymn, male hymn writer in the world, other than Fanny Crosby, had wrote over 8,000, but he wrote over 6,000 hymns have been attributed to the pen of Charles Wesley. Great hymns that you should know, like, And can it be that I should gain? 
Christ the Lord is risen today. That's a Charles Wesley song. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Love divine, all loves excelling. Those are all Charles Wesley songs. Those songs are still amazing today for their depth and theological accuracy and concern for the word of God. In fact, speaking of that, this song was first entitled, Hark How All the Welkin Rings. The word welkin is an old English word that simply refers to the upper firmament, uh, the celestial sphere where the angels are. So he was saying, hark how all the welkin rings, the sky opens up and rings. It was George Whitfield, an evangelist and colleague, who changed the opening line in 1753 to what we know today. And actually, those men had a falling out over that. Because, as Charles Wesley correctly pointed out, the scripture never says that the angels sang. The Bible says in Luke 2 that the heavenly hosts were praising God and saying, not singing, saying, glory to God in the highest and earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And Charles Wesley's concern for the scripture made him have a falling out with his friend. But in spite of Charles' anger and dislike for the altered opening line, it caught on. And it was, it was widely adapted. It was put to music. So it was 100 years before it was actually put to music. It was just known as a wonderful poem. In 1840, it was put to music by Felix Mendelssohn. And the song took off shortly after. It was then put into a Methodist hymn book. And a decade later, became one of the most popular Christian hymns known today, especially around Christmas. So that's the history of the song. Now, what's this song about? Well, we're going to look at the three most well-known verses, and we're going to talk about each one. The first verse is really about the announcement of Jesus Christ, the message that Jesus Christ is born. It's about the announcement. These are the words of the first uh, stanza. Hark how the herald angels sing. In fact, I'm going to honor Charles Wesley today. Hark how all the welkin rings. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations, rise, join the triumph of the skies. There's that welkin again. With angelic hosts, proclaim, not sing, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now that actually comes from him reading the Bible. And I want to read to you the same uh, scripture where he got his song or poem from. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and through verse 15, I'll read you these words today. In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. You know, I've always thought I would love to see an angel. I know someday I will. But I'm also sure that I wouldn't enjoy it the minute I was seeing it, right? And this scripture proves the point. They were terrified. 
Now, there are many depictions of angels in the Bible. Isaiah, for instance, pictures them as creatures with six wings. Some, the Bible said, so powerful and awesome that you're uh, tempted to fall down and worship them. That You can find that in Revelation. But did you know that the Bible also says in Hebrews 13 that angels can appear as humans, masking their glory, as strangers. And so the point of that scripture says, be hospitable, because you never know when you'll be hosting an angel in your home. These angels, though, must have been terrifying, not masking their glory, and the Bible actually says that. Horrifically beautiful, because on this night, they did not pretend to be anything less than the heavenly host. I've always thought how amazing this would have been if you were a shepherd, right? Like, to have been one of these nameless, sleepy, nomadic shepherds out in the fields at night, you know, nothing happens. Every now and then a group of wild dogs you have to chase off with a stick, but could there be anything more boring than sleeping around with sheep at night? But on this night, the heavenly hosts come to proclaim the birth of Jesus. But as amazing as this would have been for the shepherds, think how humbling and anticlimactic this would have been for for the angels. This is the apex of human history. This is the most beautiful, the most important message that could ever be delivered to a lost world. This was God saying, guess what? I have a plan. I'm going to let you in on it now. You're not lost forever. The time has come for my son to be born, to save you and to save the world. My son in whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And yet they get to a place on the GPS system where there's just a scraggly few shepherds to announce that to. I mean, if you were God, why not have like a huge earthquake and volcanoes exploding and announce it to the entire world? I mean, show up in the perfect streets of Rome with this announcement. Why not show up in Athens, Greece, right? Or at least downtown Jerusalem. Maybe even in the cobbled streets of Egypt. Why send the heavenly host to a few dirty blue-collar workers in a field at night? You know, all of this reminds me of my heart when I was in Guatemala. I was asked, many of you know, I was asked to be a pastor to a missionary community in Guatemala. And because our community was made up of really smart people, I mean, we're talking Wycliffe Bible translators who have been there for 40 years, people who had doctors in theology, people who were ministry leaders and evangelists in the States who had come to preach the good news to the Mayans, I was obviously nervous. Because how could I preach to these people who know so much about the Bible? And that's exactly why, uh, that's where exactly that I developed my work ethic for Bible study. I would spend my entire week, 40 hours a week, working on one sermon. It was a great church. I didn't have to do any calls, right? Everybody's self-sustaining in ministry. All I had to do was deliver a sermon every week. And I was consumed with getting the message right every Sunday. And you know, when I had it right, I knew I had it. Because I'd worked so hard on the sermon, I thought it kind of deserved to be delivered to a larger crowd every Sunday. I was so disappointed and shocked in my first few months, my wife is laughing, my first few months of Guatemala, because I would be so burdened. You know, you have to work your way through Scripture. You think you have it, then you don't have it, and then you're just just depressed because you don't know what to say. And then it all comes to, it's like having a child every Sunday. Like you go through labor pains, and and then you have it. And I'm so excited, burdened and excited now to deliver this message that God has given me. And I'd show up, and 
Chichi Castanango and set up a few chairs and sometimes there'd be 10, 15 missionaries come scraggling in for attendance because some were traveling to the city uh, because Sunday was the best day to travel. Some were sick or some were working with a visiting traveling team from the States and they didn't come to church that Sunday because they had their own service because they had a preacher on their team. And I struggled with my pride I would go home and I'd tell Heather, you know what? I'm bothered. I just hit a home run today and there are only 15 people to clap, you know? I'd watch it go over the fence. And and that's when she would remind me, I thought your audience was God, Don. Isn't he enough every Sunday? And then I would lovingly say, shut up. Um, Actually, I just said, be quiet. But I'd have to repent of feeling that way, and and I did get through it. And then the years went on, and many people came, but it was my growth that mattered. This event, doesn't it show us something about God? We don't know how many angels were announcing this night. We know that Christ had 10,000 at his disposal, so we could assume that it could be upwards of 10,000. We could also assume that there were less than 10 shepherds, maybe only five shepherds in the fields. 10,000 preachers for five shepherds? What does that say about God? That he's humble? That he cares about the lowliest of people and the lowliest of professions? That he cares for them as much as he cares about kings and queens and human power structures? James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to what? The humble and when I read that scripture and when I think about the announcement of Jesus Christ, I think that what, what it really means is I think that good news comes to those who need good news. Good news comes to those who need good news, not to those who already think they have it. While we were in Guatemala, we used to visit a church in Florida. Uh, Eastminster Presbyterian Church. It was an established, well-attended church with three different services, and the pastor got along famously with me, and he asked me if I'd like to preach one Sunday, and of course I did. I was well-received, even though it was probably 20 minutes longer than they had heard before. And after that, they gave me an open invitation to preach whenever I came into town, and we did. And every year we planned our trips around that trip, and we would go and preach at this church. But one afternoon, I was in the senior pastor's office, his name was Jeff, and we were discussing my journey. And he knew that I had once been an associate pastor at a church of 6,000 in Indiana, and I was on their preaching team, and I got to preach to 6,000 people. And then I was on staff at Carlisle Brethren Christ Church, we call it CBIC here, a church of 1,500. And now he said, you're preaching to 30 people in the western highlands of Guatemala. And he said to me, Don, it's just so odd. You're such a gifted teacher. And the Bible says that if we're faithful in the small things, then he will put us in charge over the big things. And he says, it seems like you're going backwards. And then he paused and the spirit of Christ came over both of us at the same time. And when he looked up, his eyes were big and I was already starting to cry. And he nodded and I nodded. And he said, unless, of course, What you're doing now is the big thing. And I said, it is. And he said, bless you, Don. I I get it now. 
I'm not sure I understand God, even imperfectly. I don't think I understand him. But all I know is this. One of the things I know is that in God's estimation, these lowly shepherds were bigger and more important to him than all the kings and kingdoms on earth because I know this is where he delivered the most important message to all of mankind. The second verse talks about the identity of Jesus Christ. And so let me read the words of the second stanza to you. Charles Wesley writes, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, I love that, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this is really, really good doctrine, solid doctrine. And doctrine is important, especially in a day and age when so many of us, so many people choose to worship at a place where they can get an experience or a feeling, and they look for that. They look for the, an emotional high. Now, I don't doubt that there's a presence of God that we can sense or feel more or less in some churches, but is it fair to judge a church based on how fun the children had in class that day, or whether or not the walls were painted with a scene from Noah's Ark, or how funny the pastor is, or attractive, because nobody would come here if that was a threshold for us, right? Or if the lighting is exactly right, or the seating is good, or if whether the worship band is tight, or whether or not they greeted you and made you feel better when you came in, right? That's the new threshold. Did they make you feel better? and greeted you, and gave you a coffee, and a donut. Listen, emotion is great when it's built on a solid foundation of truth, but if you've never heard this before, let me say it now. Emotion is a terrible means through which we find truth. Let me give an example. Heather and I would not be married today if we needed emotion to stay faithful and loyal to one another. Emotions come and go and come again and go again. In fact, just this week, we were not getting along. And we were, I was being grouchy because I wasn't getting along and I knew I couldn't tell her that she was annoying me. <laughs> but it still came out in a Don kind of way that she wasn't very pleasing to me. And she said, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter because I'm the one God gave to you, and I'm the one he wanted you to have. <laughs> and it was, amazing how, it was amazing how that made me smile. And I thought, you're right, I'm stuck. <laughs> well, there's a truth to what she said that centers our marriage. She's the one God had for me. And there, there has to be more to our faith than our feelings, or we won't be able to weather the transitional storms in a Christian's life. Pastors come, and pastors go. A baby is born in a church in the same week that somebody's mother dies. Somebody, you can come in church on Sunday morning, and somebody will give you a hug, and somebody will give you a cold shoulder. You can come into church, and somebody, you're going to find out that somebody's standing up for Christ, uh, their faith is is encouraging to you because of how strong it is. And somebody else is in 
open rebellion with God, and they don't care. And, and so there's storms and transitions and ups and downs. We can't rely on our emotion. And this hymn addresses not emotion, but the truth of Christ's deity. And this is basic doctrine, I know, but some of us forget the true doctrine of Christmas. And so let me just remind you of some of the doctrine of Christmas that Charles Wesley brings to us. He says, Christ by highest heaven adored. Do you know that Christ created the world, the Bible says? Through God, Christ was one of the creators of the world. And the Bible says that the angels, when he was creating the world, the angels were applauding the work of Christ. The angels were applauding the creation of mankind, Job 38, 7. Christ has always been loved, always been adored. Before time existed, Christ was adored. He was in communion with God and adored by his angels. Then Charles Wesley said, Christ the everlasting Lord. Everlasting. It means Christ has had no beginning. Christ has no end. Like you or I, we know where we begin, and someday we will have an end. Some of us will have an eternal end. But the world wants us to think at Christmas that Bethlehem was the beginning of Christ, and it wasn't. It was simply the place where he came into our time as the incarnate God who always was. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am. And then Charles Wesley writes, offspring of a virgin's womb, interesting, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Jesus, the Bible says, put on a human suit, veiled in flesh. That's what it means, is he put on a human suit through the womb of a human woman. That's where he derived his suit, coming through the womb. But the Bible also says he was more than human, wasn't he? He was God, but his glory was covered over by the human suit. Jesus said in John 14, he said, if you know me, you know my father. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. You see what he's saying? I'm God. I'm just veiled in a human suit. The Old Testament predicted through Isaiah that the sign of the Messiah, you see, one of the signs of the Messiah would be a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7:14, offspring of a virgin's womb. That's the sign of the Christ's coming. God did not look down on earth and adopt a child. Nor did he send his son in all of his glory because that would have been the end of time. That's what will happen someday, will it not? That Jesus will return in his glory and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He didn't send him that way. No, he came veiled in human flesh. And the question is why? Why did he do that? This is good doctrine that you should know. There's another stanza that Charles Wesley writes that we, don't, that we never sing, but let me just read these words in one of the, uh, his stanzas of his poem. He writes this, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. What's he talking about there? So you need to know why Jesus Christ came as a human. Well, did you know that Adam was the only human being ever simply created by God, right? That had no help from another human. God created him out of the dirt. And then Eve was the second human created from Adam, right? Which meant, what did it mean? It means there was no sin nature present in those two. They had a real shot at obeying God with all of their lives, but they fell. And they entered into this human race with sin and a sin nature, doomed all of mankind, so this is what we know about sin. Sin is not just something that we do or don't do. 
The Bible says sin is in our DNA. It's who we are, unless you happen to be not be born from a woman by a man's seed. Because the Bible says it's passed in a natural, organic way through mankind. And there's no other way to create a human known to man but through man, man's lifeblood, going into the womb of a woman. And, and so it means that we are a sinner from birth. Does that make sense? All of the DNA, all of the sin nature is passed at the very beginning from the very seed of a man. And so this is who we are. I'm a sinner from birth. From my mother's womb I came out damned. So, what did God do? God had the womb of Mary that provided the veil of flesh, but God created the man. You see, Jesus Christ was not the product of a son of Adam. Jesus Christ was the product of God's seed. So Jesus was conceived by God himself, which made Jesus a second Adam. Now do you know why he's a second Adam? Because he was born not with a sin nature. He was not born unto damnation like the rest of us, which means he had a real shot, a real opportunity at being sinless, like the first Adam had and failed. Jesus Christ had the ability through his faithfulness to remain obedient and sinless before God. And so he did. As a second Adam, he walked back the disobedience of Adam and provided mankind with a second Adam. Do you see it now? And because of the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus then becomes effectual for all those who are called. You see, if Jesus Christ had just died on a cross and had made mistakes like Adam, it wouldn't mean anything. Hebrews 5.9 says, He was made perfect through his obedience so that he could become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. You see? He was perfect in his obedience. Therefore, he's the source of eternal salvation. He's the second Adam. Now, Jesus Christ didn't need a perfect life in heaven. He already had it. But he came to earth to do it in our place as a human. Charles Wesley writes, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus was 100% man, wasn't he? And he was 100% God. And if you ask me later to explain that, I'll tell you I can't. But Philippians 2 tells us that he was God, equal to God, but he humbled himself, the Bible said. He did not consider equality with God as something to be attained or entitled to. So he emptied himself, whatever that means, I think it means to be veiled in human flesh because it says he found in human form and humbled himself to be a man. Now, here's where I have a little bit of, you know, where my heart breaks for God. Because if I was going to send Jesus Christ to earth as a man, why not come as a king, a a literal king? Why not come into a home of royalty? Why? Because the home is warm. And the people are prepared and loving you and ready for you. Even today, people with more resources are more prepared and loving towards kids than those who are you know, surprised by it every nine months, right? I mean, God had worked on this his whole, for eternity had worked on this birth, and yet he comes into a place where there aren't enough food and resources. Jesus came into the lowliest of low homes, the Bible says, a family who was so poor that they, had to, they could only have a dove as a sacrifice, which was the lowliest form of sacrifice. I mean, not terrible parents, but terribly poor parents. A teenage mom 
which means he was a child who must have went to bed hungry at times. I don't know about you, but my kids have never really gone to bed hungry at night. But God's son did. He was a child who probably lived on a dirt floor, born in a manger around animals. I don't know about you, but my children had the brightest of lights available to them. The best doctors in Indianapolis were hovering over them, delivering them to me. They always were raised in a place where they had a warm carpet or a warm wood floor or a warm tile floor. But Jesus Christ didn't get that. That's amazing to me as a father. As a man, as a human person, he was so tired that one time he slept on a boat, right? Can you imagine? Sleeping on an old wooden boat in the middle of an ocean, how tired he must have been. Jesus Christ was so human, he wept at funerals. So human that he had no place to lay his head, he said at night. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to go to bed at night. His stomach grumbled because he was hungry. We know he had dirty feet, but he was so much God that he calmed the storm with his words. He was so much God that he rose Lazarus from the grave. He was so much God that he was able to feed thousands of people with a few loaves and minnows. He was so much God that he not only humbled himself to wash our feet, but he provided spiritual water to cleanse our damned souls. Jesus was pleased to dwell as a man, but I don't know how. And then the Bible reminds me why. You know, my kids and I talk a lot about dreams because we have bad dreams and good dreams. And last night, my little girl, Olivia, had a bad dream. And she was crying because Allie wouldn't wake up and pray for her. So we went and talked to her, and Mom prayed for her. And at night, we'll pray with our kids that they have good dreams, and sometimes they do. And we always pray for good dreams. And I thought, Jesus is a man, if he, if he had dreams, I know what they would have been. Because the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy of Jesus? It was to save our souls. The only thing that he didn't have in heaven was you and I. And so I bet when he laid down at night, his good dreams were the reunion someday when he opened the gates of Eden and he allowed us to come in to eat of the eternal uh, fruit on the eternal tree. That's the kind of dreams that Jesus had. And that's why he was pleased to come as a man, because the joy set before him. I think it's funny how the world tries to suppress the identity of Christ. You know, you'll see this entire season. Nobody really wants you to think about who he really was. Oh, he, he's just a man, or he's one of the ones that we talk about at Christmas. He's a good man. He was a prophet, yes. But there are lots of other prophets, and really this holiday is about a fat old man with a white beard, right? Just Santa Claus. And... So let's not sanction all of the manger scenes. Let's make sure we are careful with us, and let's be careful not to say Merry Christmas. Let's say Happy Holidays. And the kids aren't on Christmas break. They're on a winter break. And yet, what's funny to me is you can walk through any mall, any worldly mall or worldly airport today over Christmas, and I bet you could probably hear this Charles Wesley song in the background, and they don't even know that although it's just background music, it's shouting the identity of Christ. Christ by highest heavens adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, there's nothing subtle about that theology. Either it's true, and everybody who really heard it should bow, or it's a complete lie, and they should never play it. 
but they don't know, do they? And so be encouraged this Christmas as you hear these songs. Now, the last stanza talks about the work of Christ. So we've talked about the announcement and then the identity of Christ, and then the last stanza really is about the work of Christ. What did he do? And Charles Wesley writes, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. I, I I could camp here all day. The Bible says Jesus Christ came to bring light, didn't he not? He came to bring light, life and light and healing. John 8, he says of himself, I am the what of the world? The light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness because you will have the light. He said he's the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And John 10, he says, I have come, what? That they might have what? Life. And might have it more abundantly. Charles Wesley is absolutely right. Do you think Jesus came so we could have bigger bank accounts and a nicer car and a bigger home? Or something better, something much deeper than that. A light and life that's more comprehensive than that. But also, listen, as deep and comprehensive as that life and light is, my question this Christmas, even this morning, is shouldn't it show on our faces? You know, I will agree with you that there's something sad and maybe even oppressive about the laughter that comes from a comedy club at midnight or a local bar when the doors are open at 1 a.m., I remember Heather and I, uh, just this last year, were able to go to New Orleans. I've always wanted to go to New Orleans. I've always known I would love New Orleans, even though I've never been there. And we got to go there, and one of the things I wanted to do was walk down Bourbon Street in the middle of the night. And we did, together, holding hands. We wanted to see the sights of Bourbon Street, and I saw most of the sights, except when her hand went over my eyes. Um, But other than that, I had a great experience. And everyone was smiling and laughing. I mean, it's midnight we were out, and it was 78 degrees, right? Doors are open, music blaring, people dancing in the street, different little bands playing, laughter everywhere. But you know what? You could tell that that laughter was a thin veneer-type laughter over something that was deeper and darker and more painful. You could tell that that kind of laughter was chemically induced, and could flip in a moment to anger and deep depression. Manufactured happiness. But I just want to say something to you that maybe you'll be mad at me later, because you shouldn't be, because I'm I'm a part of this problem as well. But as, as sad as that laughter was, you know what else is sad? As a pastor, I still had moments where I wondered if I rather preferred that kind of happiness than to some of the faces I see on church every Sunday. You know, you know what pastors joke about? A pastor will say to somebody else, hey, how's your church doing? And one of the standard lines is to say, well, there are no problems or issues that wouldn't be solved by having a few funerals. Isn't that jaded? I've never said that, by the way, just so you know. But what they mean is they get so tired of the burdensome of trying to raise emotions in a church when Christians... Yes, listen, by the way, I know joy is different than happiness, But Christians as well should be having more fun than anybody every day. We should be happy, smiling, having fun, because nothing matters to us anymore. Like, what can hurt us? We're impervious to some pain. If we have a bad situation, it's going to get better. You see, Christians have the only answer to the only problem that really matters in life. The great giant in everybody's life is death. One out of one... 
People die. The great statistic of life. And the Christian has it figured out. There is eternal life. There is an answer. There is an announcement. There is a message that, that angels herald. We're sitting on a treasure. You know where Charles Wesley got that line about the son of righteousness risen with healing in his wings? Of course, Charles Wesley got it right from Scripture. Malachi 4.2 says this, But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, there it is, and they had it there with son, S-U-N. Malachi didn't even know what he was writing about. He would have made an O there. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And really, he didn't know it was healing in his wings. But do you know what he said in the very next verse that Charles Wesley didn't include? He writes, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Have you ever seen calves confined to a stall, Doug? Many of you are knitting, right? And they get outside, or maybe they've been cooped up for the winter, and the spring comes, and you let them go. What happens, Doug? They go, yeah, that's right. They're jumping and leaping and kicking. The, the, the earth, the dirt, the freedom. I know it's Pollyanna of me to say this, but Christians should leave church every Sunday that way. Like calves released from a stall. That's how we should live. That's how you should leave church. Are you saved? If you're, listen, if you were dying of cancer today, and by the way, Doug had a wonderful friend here last week who is given months to live, and she was, she was like a calf leaping from her stall. But if I were able to go up to somebody this morning and said, I have six months to live, I'm going to die of a brain tumor, and I said, not anymore. Here's a magic pill. It's going to give you 25 years more life. But if I gave it to you, I think you would be excited. I think you would leap like a calf. How much more fun should we have when you've been given healing for the curse of our souls, the poison of sin, and have been given not 25 years, right, Doug? Not 50. Eternal life. An eternal home. Charles Wesley says, born that man no more may die. You see? Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them Second birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, unless you're what? Born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. Why did he say that? Know your theology. Charles Wesley knew it. Because there was one Adam, and we're born from that one Adam, which means that we must die eternally. But there's a second Adam, which means if we're born again, and to that Adam, we have eternal life. Does that make sense? You see the theology of scripture there's a wonderful saying it goes like this if you're born twice you only die once if you're born once you'll die twice if you're born twice once through a woman secondly in a new birth you'll only die once a physical death and then you'll live forever but if you're only born once physical birth you're going to die twice you're going to die a physical death, and the Bible says eternally you will be separated from your father. Charles Wesley said, it's laid out perfectly for us, and now the choice is yours. I hope God is drawing you to him this morning. I hope you've been called to his grace. And if you have, you'll leap like a calf this morning as you leave church. Amen? Let's pray. And by the way, after we pray, we're going to sing this song. Because now we know the words, and we know what they mean. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We thank you, Father, for what you've done for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to go into Scripture and be reminded of these truths that we sometimes just simply forget. When Christmas becomes about some sort of gift that we may or may not get wrong, some party that we may or may not go to, some family gathering that we may or may not want to go to, and how will we be, and what are we doing, and our schedule gets packed, and somehow Satan has found a way for us to forget the meaning of this season, that you, on a dark hill with a few blue-collar shepherds, the host of heavenly angels came to announce the greatest news known to mankind, that you had a plan and that now you are making it known exactly what that plan was. And that child, that plan, wasn't born on a hilltop in a kingdom, but in a lonely manger surrounded by just a few people, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. We love you so much, God. May he be a king in our hearts today. It's in your name we pray, amen.